Book Nine, Part Two of Plato's Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. The Republic by Plato, translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book Nine, Part Two. Let me then offer you an illustration which may, I think, throw a light upon this subject. What is your illustration? The case of rich individuals in cities who possess many slaves. From them you may form an idea of the tyrant's condition, for they both have slaves. The only difference is that he has more slaves. Yes, that is the difference. You know that they live securely and have nothing to apprehend from their servants? What should they fear? Nothing. But do you observe the reason of this? Yes. The reason is that the whole city is leagued together for the protection of each individual. Very true, I said. But imagine one of these owners, the master, say, of some fifty slaves, together with his family and property and slaves. Carried off by a god into the wilderness, where there are no free men to help him, will he not be in an agony of fear lest he and his wife and children should be put to death by his slaves? Yes, he said, he will be in the utmost fear. The time has arrived when he will be compelled to flatter divers of his slaves and make many promises to them of freedom and other things, much against his will. He will have to cajole his own servants. Yes. He said, "That will be the only way of saving himself." And suppose the same God, who carried him away, to surround him with neighbors who will not suffer one man to be the master of another, and who, if they could catch the offender, would take his life. His case will be still worse if you suppose him to be everywhere surrounded and watched by enemies. And is not this the sort of prison in which the tyrant will be bound? He who, being by nature such as we have described, is full of all sorts of fears and lusts, his soul is dainty and greedy, and yet alone of all men in the city he is never allowed to go on a journey or to see the things which other free men desire to see. But he lives in his hole like a woman hidden in the house, and is jealous of any other citizen who goes into foreign parts and sees anything of interest. Very true, he said. And amid evils such as these, will not he who is ill-governed in his own person, the tyrannical man, I mean, whom you just now decided to be the most miserable of all, will not he be yet more miserable when, instead of leaving a private life, he is constrained by fortune to be a public tyrant? He has to be master of others when he is not master of himself. He is like a diseased or paralytic man who is compelled to pass his life, not in retirement, but fighting and combating with other men. Yes, he said. The similitude is most exact. Is not his case utterly miserable, and does not the actual tyrant lead a worse life than he whose life you determine to be the worst? Certainly. He who is the real tyrant, whatever men may think, is the real slave and is obliged to practice the greatest adulation and servility, and to be the flatterer of the vilest of mankind. He has desires which he is utterly unable to satisfy, and has more wants than any one, and is truly poor. If you know how to inspect the whole soul of him, 
All his life long he is beset with fear, and is full of convulsions and distractions, even as the state which he resembles, and surely the resemblance holds? Very true, he said. Moreover, as we were saying, before he grows worse from having power, he becomes, and is of necessity, more jealous, more faithless, more unjust, more friendless, more impious, than he was at first. He is the purveyor and cherisher of every sort of vice, and the consequence is that he is supremely miserable, and that he makes everybody else as miserable as himself. No man of any sense will dispute your words. Come then, I said, and as the general umpire in theatrical contests, proclaim the result. Do you also decide who in your opinion is the first in the scale of happiness, and who second, and in what order the others follow? There are five of them in all. They are the royal, timocratical, oligarchical, democratical, tyrannical. The decision will be easily given, he replied. They shall be choruses coming on the stage, and I must judge them in the order in which they enter, by the criterion of virtue and vice, happiness and misery. Need we hire a herald, or shall I announce that the son of Ariston, the best, has decided that the best and justest is also the happiest, and that this is he who is the most royal man and king over himself, and that the worst and most unjust man is also the most miserable, and that this is he who, being the greatest tyrant of himself, is also the greatest tyrant of his state? Make the proclamation yourself, he said. And shall I add, whether seen or unseen by gods and men? Let the words be added. Then this, I said, will be our first proof, and there is another which may also have some weight. What is that? The second proof is derived from the nature of the soul. Seeing that the individual soul, like the state, has been divided by us into three principles, the division may, I think, furnish a new demonstration. Of what nature? It seems to me that to these three principles three pleasures correspond, also three desires and governing powers. How do you mean? he said. There is one principle with which, as we were saying, a man learns, another with which he is angry, the third, having many forms, has no special name, but is denoted by the general term appetitive, from the extraordinary strength and vehemence of the desires of eating and drinking, and the other sensual appetites which are the main elements of it, also money-loving, because such desires are generally satisfied by the help of money. That is true, he said. If we were to say that the loves and pleasures of this third part were concerned with gain, we should then be able to fall back on a single notion, and might truly and intelligibly describe this part of the soul as loving gain or money. I agree with you. Again, is not the passionate element wholly set on ruling and conquering and getting fame? True. Suppose we call it the contentious or ambitious, would the term be suitable? Extremely suitable. On the other hand, everyone sees that the principle of knowledge is wholly directed to the truth, and cares less than either of the others for gain or fame. Far less. Lover of wisdom, lover of knowledge, are titles which we may fitly apply to that part of the soul? Certainly. One principle prevails in the souls of one class of men, another in others, as may happen. 
Yes. Then we may begin by assuming that there are three classes of men. Lovers of wisdom, lovers of honor, lovers of gain? Exactly. And there are three kinds of pleasure, which are their several objects? Very true. Now, if you examine the three classes of men, and ask of them in turn which of their lives is pleasantest, each will be found praising his own, and depreciating that of others. The money-maker will contrast the vanity of honor, or of learning, if they bring no money, with the solid advantages of gold and silver? True, he said. And the lover of honor, what will be his opinion? Will he not think that the pleasure of riches is vulgar, while the pleasure of learning, if it brings no distinction, is all smoke and nonsense to him? Very true. And are we to suppose, I said, that the philosopher sets any value on other pleasures in comparison with the pleasure of knowing the truth, and in that pursuit abiding, ever learning, not so far indeed from the heaven of pleasure? Does he not call the other pleasures necessary, under the idea that if there were no necessity for them, he would rather not have them? There can be no doubt of that, he replied. Since, then, the pleasures of each class and the life of each are in dispute, and the question is not which life is more or less honorable, or better or worse, but which is the more pleasant or painless, how shall we know who speaks truly? I cannot myself tell, he said. Well, but what ought to be the criterion? Is any better than experience and wisdom and reason? There cannot be a better, he said. Then, I said, reflect, of the three individuals, which has the greatest experience of all the pleasures which we enumerated? Has the lover of gain, in learning the nature of essential truth, greater experience of the pleasure of knowledge than the philosopher has of the pleasure of gain? The philosopher, he replied, has greatly the advantage, for he has of necessity always known the taste of the other pleasures from his childhood upwards. But the lover of gain, in all his experience, has not of necessity tasted, or, I should rather say, even had he desired, could hardly have tasted, the sweetness of learning and knowing truth. Then the lover of wisdom has a great advantage over the lover of gain, for he has a double experience? Yes, very great. Again, has he greater experience of the pleasures of honor, or the lover of honor of the pleasures of wisdom? Nay, he said, all three are honored in proportion as they attain their object, for the rich man, and the brave man, and the wise men alike have their crowd of admirers, and as they all receive honor, they all have experience of the pleasures of honor. But the delight which is to be found in the knowledge of true being is known to the philosopher only, his experience, then, will enable him to judge better than any one? Far better. And he is the only one who has wisdom as well as experience? Certainly. Further, the very faculty, which is the instrument of judgment, is not possessed by the covetous or ambitious man, but only by the philosopher? What faculty? Reason, with whom, as we were saying, the decision ought to rest. Yes. And reasoning is peculiarly his instrument? Certainly. If wealth and gain were the criterion, then the praise or blame of the lover of gain would certainly be the most trustworthy? Assuredly. Or if honor or victory or courage, 
In that case, the judgment of the ambitious or pugnacious would be the truest? Clearly. But since experience and wisdom and reason are the judges? The only inference possible, he replied, is that pleasures which are approved by the lover of wisdom and reason are the truest. And so we arrive at the result that the pleasure of the intelligent part of the soul is the pleasantest of the three, and that he of us in whom this is the ruling principle has the pleasantest life. Unquestionably, he said, the wise man speaks with authority when he approves of his own life. And what does the judge affirm to be the life which is next, and the pleasure which is next? Clearly that of the soldier and lover of honour, who is nearer to himself than the money-maker. Last comes the lover of gain. Very true, he said. Twice in succession, then, has the just man overthrown the unjust in this conflict, and now comes the third trial, which is dedicated to Olympian Zeus, the saviour. A sage whispers in my ear that no pleasure except that of the wise is quite true and pure. All others are a shadow only, and surely this will prove the greatest and most decisive of falls? Yes, the greatest. But will you explain yourself? I will work out the subject, and you shall answer my questions. Proceed. Say, then, is not pleasure opposite to pain? True. And there is a neutral state which is neither pleasure nor pain? There is. A state which is intermediate, and a sort of repose of the soul about either, that is what you mean? Yes. You remember what people say when they are sick? What do they say? That after all, nothing is pleasanter than health. But then they never knew this to be the greatest of pleasures until they were ill. Yes, I know, he said. And when persons are suffering from acute pain, you must have heard them say that there is nothing pleasanter than to get rid of their pain? I have. And there are many other cases of suffering, in which the mere rest and cessation of pain, and not any positive enjoyment, is extolled by them as the greatest pleasure? Yes, he said, at the time they are pleased and well content to be at rest. Again, when pleasure ceases, that sort of rest or cessation will be painful? Doubtless, he said. Then the intermediate state of rest will be pleasure and will also be pain? So it would seem. But can that which is neither become both? I should say not. And both pleasure and pain are motions of the soul, are they not? Yes. But that which is neither was just now shown to be rest and not motion, and in a mean between them? Yes. How, then, can we be right in supposing that the absence of pain is pleasure, or that the absence of pleasure is pain? Impossible. This, then, is an appearance only, and not a reality. That is to say, the rest is pleasure at the moment and in comparison of what is painful, and painful in comparison of what is pleasant. But all these representations, when tried by the test of true pleasure, are not real, but a sort of imposition? That is the inference. Look at the other class of pleasures, which have no antecedent pains, and you will no longer suppose, as you perhaps may at present, that pleasure is only the cessation of pain, or pain of pleasure. 
What are they, he said, and where shall I find them? There are many of them. Take as an example the pleasures of smell, which are very great and have no antecedent pains. They come in a moment, and when they depart, leave no pain behind them. Most true, he said. Let us not, then, be induced to believe that pure pleasure is the cessation of pain, or pain of pleasure. No. Still, the more numerous and violent pleasures which reach the soul through the body are generally of this sort. They are reliefs of pain. That is true. And the anticipations of future pleasures and pains are of a like nature? Yes. Shall I give you an illustration of them? Let me hear. You would allow, I said, that there is in nature an upper and lower and middle region? I should. And if a person were to go from the lower to the middle region, would he not imagine that he is going up? And he who is standing in the middle and sees whence he has come would imagine that he is already in the upper region, if he has never seen the true upper world? To be sure, he said. How can he think otherwise? But if we were taken back again, he would imagine, and truly imagine, that he was descending? No doubt. All that would arise out of his ignorance of the true upper and middle and lower regions? Yes. End of Book 9, Part 2 Recording by Geoffrey Edwards